Macy. <laughs> All right. I'm creating a collection of stories showcasing resilient people who overcome unimaginable hardships while finding beauty in the ups and downs of life. Every moment is significant. This is Push Diaries Podcast. I'm your host, Tess. Okay, hello everybody. Uh, thanks for listening in to Push Diaries Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Tess, and today I have a really good friend. On Her name is Heather, and she grew up in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I actually have her on the podcast today because she's in town, and so am I. So, Mm -hmm. Heather, would you like to say hello? Sure. Yeah, so um, like Tess said, my name's Heather. I'm from Bemidji originally, but I live in Minneapolis right now. So I'm in town because Tess is in town, so I came to see her um, because she doesn't live in Winona anymore. So my chances of seeing one of my best friends are... Greatly reduced. Thanks for moving nine hours away from me. Yes, you're welcome. I'm sorry about that. It is really nice that we can meet in Winona to talk and get together when we want to hang out. So I'm happy to have her today. What do you do for a job? I am a social worker. So I work for a nonprofit. I work in um, mental health and vocational rehabilitation. So I think today our plan is to talk about how we met and our relationship to each other. Yep. And then we're going to talk a little bit about your your cancer diagnosis and then also my um, genetic disease that I have that's in my family. So yeah. that's kind of the point of today. Um, but first, let's talk about how we met and how long we've known each other. Because that's Perfect. the fun part. <laughs> yes. It's I a mean, beautiful segue. <clears throat> yeah. So what? when did we meet? 2008? Oh, my gosh. Um, we're old. Yes. No, it was 2008. I, I graduated high school in 2007, and you graduated high school in... 05. 05. So you're 32 right mm-hmm. now, and you'll be 33 in February. And I'm 30. I'll be 31 in March. So mm-hmm. she's two years older than me. Mm-hmm. No, three. Yeah, two. two. Almost exactly two. And we met... Uh, I went to St. Cloud State, and so did Heather... And we worked at Cold Stone Creamery together, which is such a fun memory. <laughs> Dude, Cold Stone Creamery was like my favorite job that I've probably ever had. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Did you enjoy it as much as I did? I did. Yeah, that was a weird summer because I remember I, well, I was 21, so I was in a whole new world. <laughs> yep. Being 21. And I had just gone to Europe for choir tour and... uh I remember thinking, like, because I had transferred from Bemidji to St. Cloud State, and I didn't really make friends that whole year because everybody thought I was a freshman in choir because I was brand new face. So, so nobody talked to me. So what year did you arrive at St. Cloud State? Uh, 07 to oh. 08. So it was my third year of school. And you, But it was your first year at St. Cloud yeah. State. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So I met you, like, only months after you started at St. Cloud State. No, you met me a year after? after my year. Yeah. Okay, so you were there a year. So Heather was in the cohort. Social work cohort. Yeah. we were both social work majors. Yeah, so we started talking at Coldstone. We were both ice cream professional scoopers. Yep. <laughs> if you want to say that. Yeah. So we, we met, you know, <laughs> she and I probably only had like, oh, 10 other 
colleagues at the creamery, maybe 12. Do you I, remember meeting me? Or no, there was probably 20 of us. I want to say there was no, like 15. There was, there was a lot. Yes, I do remember meeting Heather. Because I don't remember meeting you. No I offense. No, it's okay. Well, <laughs> and you probably... Like, you and I warmed up to each other slowly because as soon as we started talking about our social work schooling, I think is Well, you we... weren't a social work major yet. Yeah, you're right. I was in nursing. I convinced you. She did. You did. But you regret that now. No. <laughs> I don't. Sorry, social I don't. workers. No, but you're right. It's like social work is hard, but so is nursing. And I, I'm happy that that brought us together. Yeah. So. Yep. so that's how we met. And then we started hanging out. My first impression <laughs> of you was like, oh, she's very beautiful. And she probably doesn't want to be my friend. And she's older <laughs> than me. So I thought she was just too cool to be my friend. Oh, so. really? I think my probably my first impression of you was, oh, she doesn't know what she wants to do with her major. I'm going to tell her about social work. Yeah. And then you were like behind me a semester, so I told you all of the stuff to do yep. and who to avoid yep. for professors. Yep. And, and like how to study and what things to keep an eye out for. I basically helped you graduate. Yeah. I mean, it's true. No, I'm just it's, kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, it's kind of true. I am so glad that I went to school for social work. I feel like it's made me be able to do this. I mean, honestly, leading to having the balls to make a podcast and like find similarities amongst people that are going through traumatic things. I think it's important as we age to be able to do that. And isn't that why you chose social work? Mm -hmm. Do you know why you chose social work? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know like the the exact road that my life was going to take me on, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But I had some very impactful things growing up happen. And I think I think a lot of um, professionals in the field are, you know, they've gone through something that has impacted them, shaped them, created them to be a more um, or help to to make them more empathetic to other people's pain in their lives. Um, I think that's kind of a common theme. Absolutely. You know? And and, having the strength to forge ahead, right? I mean, mm -hmm. strength-based perspectives. Perspectives, yep. Yeah. Is huge. I mean, in the line of work we do and the line of just how we hold ourselves Mm -hmm. and the standards we hope for ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're not going to tell our clients that they shouldn't remain hopeful and that they're strong enough to go through traumatic things if we didn't truly believe that they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like even on my way down to see Tess today, I was listening to a podcast about um, like body positivity and um, the diet culture and all this stuff. And it, this podcast was done by a nutritionist, and she was talking about how a lot of people in the nutrition field are in it because they've struggled with food in some some sort of way. And it kind of resonated with me about how social workers are in the field we are of helping people on a deeper level because right. we've, more often than not, we've kind of gone through some things in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so Absolutely. And everybody has trials. Yep. Everybody, if, if you personally haven't gone through something difficult, chances are you know someone who has. So Yeah. So, so, should we dive right in, Heather? Yeah. Is, now that people kind of know where we're coming from and have a context about what we're going to talk about. Sure. Um, and it's not an easy conversation. I am impressed with how Heather has um, been able to handle all of this and the things that she's been able to accomplish in the last few years is a good thing. Um, Heather knew me before my cancer diagnosis, and I knew her before her diagnosis. 
Heather, do you want to start with Dan? Do you want to go back to that? Kind of talk about what you remember of him. Sure. What happened when he got sick and kind of what started happening in your family when that came to the forefront? Yeah, I'll kind of give a little backstory. So um, (coughs) I am the youngest of six children in a large, well, it's a pretty large family in today's standards. So I have four older brothers and one older sister. Um, when I was about 15, my oldest brother, Daniel, he was probably like, well, gosh, when I was 15, he was probably like 26. Uh, but he kind of started just exhibiting some erratic behavior, um, impulse, lack of impulse control. Do you remember what that looked like specifically? Was it work? Was it familial relationships? I, I mean, it was everything. I mean... It was everything. Yeah. An impulsive. Short temper, like um, quick to to, um, become frustrated and just kind of a lot of those things. And I remember, you know, he was living with my family, my parents and I, and I was, God, I must have been in 10th grade, 10th grade. Um, And he had kind of struggled with, you know, jobs and switching jobs and just kind of hanging out with a rough crowd and I remember eventually you know my mother you know she has a nurse nursing background and she finally was like you know something's just not right like we need to we need to get you into see a doctor and they did an MRI and they they saw like some lesions on the frontal lobe of the brain and you know lots of testing later Lots of, I mean, blood tests, urine tests, MRIs, I don't know what other tests they probably did, but it was determined that he has or had a gene- genetic disease called metachromatic leukodystrophy. Which they were able to figure out through urine testing? Yep, yep. So what what this disease is, it's a genetic, genetic genetically inherited, they call it a lysosomal storage disease. Um, but essentially... What happens when you have this disease is that your body lacks an enzyme called aerosulfatase A. So in normal folks, a normal level of aerosulfatase A is about 80%. Um, People with MLD have probably like 3%, 2%. This enzyme is important because it breaks down down sulfatides um, in your blood. So... Mm -hmm. When you don't have this enzyme working at full capacity of like 80%, sulfatides build up. Right. But it's where they build up that matters, mm-hmm. and that's in your myelin sheath, which is in your frontal lobe, mm-hmm. which controls your nervous system, yep. your impulse control, your cognitive functioning. So it's, it's a terminal disease. There's no solid cure for it right now. Yes, um, yes. It's pretty rare. Um, about 1 in 40,000 people are afflicted with it. And there's three different types of it. So there's infantile, um, juvenile, and then adult. Mm-hmm. So, And Heather's type is the most rare out of the three. Yeah, I have the adult form. So most people in the world that get MLD, they're most likely to have it as infants. Yep, so infantile. So the fact that Heather has it, she's even a rarer breed than... Rare the bird itself. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, so, you know, essentially what happened was they found out, you know, that my brother had this awful disease. And having that, you know, 
I just think about my parents and how they dealt with this. Yeah, because um, they had no idea. Well, no. That either of them were carriers, but come to find out. Correct. Daniel they were was... both carriers, which is why Daniel had the disease. Late infantile onset ages one to two years old, this is the most common form of MLD. With this type of MLD, the child will at first have a few months of normal development, but he or she will then appear to regress as motor skills start to suffer. Juvenile onset affects 30 to 20% of all individuals afflicted with MLD. This onset occurs between the ages of four and adolescence. Sometimes first noted during early school years when cognitive and behavior issues are observed. Some individuals maintain mobility and cognitive skills for several years after onset. The decline is generally slower than in infantile cases. The third and final type of MLD is the adult onset type, which afflicts 20 to 15% of people with MLD. In this age group, onset occurs during teenage years and later. Affected individuals alternate between periods of stability and decline that can last over 20 to 30 years. First signs in this type of MLD are changes in gait, personality, and cognitive skills. Heather has the adult onset. I have to say that being a friend with someone with MLD is anxiety-ridden, just wondering and thinking about what decisions in her regular life are just a typical 30-year-old's behavior and what could be signs of MLD progression. It's not my place to judge or dictate Heather's actions. I do love her and I want her well taken care of as she ages as we want this for all of our loved ones. Yep, so what happens is when one parent's a carrier and the other parent's a carrier for a mutated gene, um, so they each have one mutated gene, both my mother and my father, and then combined, them having children, it gives them a 25% chance of a child having two mutated genes, meaning that they have MLD. Right. So... Yeah, so I mean, this was back in 2002. So then my brother, the only the only treatment they have currently right now that is approved by the FDA in the United States are bone marrow transplants. So the hope is basically, you know, you, you go through chemo. So chemotherapy, it knocks down your immune system so that when they introduce somebody else's bone marrow into okay. your body, it's a foreign... It's a foreign um, Entity, basically. So, like, our immune system is there to fight off foreign entities or foreign... You know, I don't know the exact medical terminology, but it'll accept accept somebody else's bone marrow and their DNA so that the hope... And this, in some cases, this this has, you know, been effective for folks who have gone through uh, BMTs, uh, bone marrow transplants. So that they, you can accept their bone marrow and that it'll start to regenerate an appropriate level of this enzyme to either basically delay this disease or stop it completely. Right. But it's very um, intense. It's, it's not, very intense. It's not something people take lightly, and it's something you've considered. Yeah, I mean, I've considered it. Um, I've gone to the U of M a few times. I've had, I've had MRIs. I had an MRI back in 2010 when I, when I first found out that I had MLD. Um, so yes, there's a gap in between when I was actually diagnosed with it and when I found out, Mm -hmm. but that's a whole different story. Yeah. So backtracking to Dan, he was diagnosed around the age of 26. Yep. And 
as he found out about the disease, do you remember your how your family handled it? I mean, I know you all got tested. How soon after that they did say, okay, Dan does have MLD, did the rest of your siblings get tested? Well, I mean, t- to be honest, I was 15 at the time. I mean, I didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. You know, and I think I think my parents were just trying to wrap their head around everything. And protect you as and a 15-year-old girl. I was a, I was a um, minor 15 at the time. is a hard age for anyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, all I cared about was getting rid of the acne on my face and if I had a date to formal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or if boys liked right. me. Right, right. You know what you I mean? You had no idea. Like, and I yeah. worried about putting on eyeliner correctly. Sure, like, sure. And you probably thought, like, okay... Dan is sick, so we're getting these tests. And yeah, I mean, and I doesn't really affect. I me. didn't really ask questions, right? Because I didn't want to be, you know, the girl with a sick brother, right? You know what I mean? You wanted you want to be normal when you're a kid. It's a hard enough time as it is mm-hmm. going through all those changes. So you all got tested, mm-hmm. and and he slowly got worse and worse. Do you remember those four years, Heather, between the? time he was 26 and 30 like no, how bad it got he, so he didn't make it to, no so dan was diagnosed probably when he was 26 he underwent a bone marrow transplant when he was 27 oh so only a year it was real quick like they yeah and um he didn't have good matches for bone marrow actually so there's different types of <clears throat> bone marrow transplants there's cord blood or umbilical cord blood transplants um and then there is stem cell transplants. And then there's like the actual bone marrow, I believe. I could be completely wrong, but I, I know that there's different kinds. And I know Daniel had three different uh, cord blood transfer transfusions or transplants. Um, unfortunately, he none of them engrafted and he did pass away as complications uh, in 2003. So kind of a crazy time. He was diagnosed and dead in a year. Probably a year and a half, maybe a year. And, I don't know exactly the well, time frame. Well, I didn't that. realize that. I just I just thought he died when he was about 30. So no. to hear, it's interesting. You know, I know you really well, but to talk about it again, yeah, only one year. I mean, that is so fast. I mean, it might be a little bit longer than that. I'm trying But to... it wasn't five years. It wasn't. No, no. I it mean... was pretty quick. Because the disease was already progressing. Like, right. he was already symptomatic. Right. Um, so I think the thought was to do it as soon as possible. Right. You know, um, and your other siblings also had adult. Can you talk about your other siblings now? Sure. So essentially in a family, whatever type of genes the parents have, because there's specific indicators and different mutations of the gene for, um, metachromatic leukodystrophy. Um, so when, for instance, in a family, all of the children who are afflicted or have the disease, they're going to have the same type of disease or same category, subcategory, whether it's infantile, juvenile, or adult. So myself and my other siblings, because I do have other siblings who are um, who also have MLD, we all have the adult form, so meaning 18 years and older. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Daniel probably started showing symptoms when he was 18. I believe Mm -hmm. Um, he kind of went off to college and he didn't, I don't even think he made it through his first year of college. Wow. Um, And I'm sure too that, you know, when the symptoms started happening, when your family had no idea that was the disease. Well, yeah. Maybe they thought it was something else. Like he had severe anxiety about something or, 
And he probably just thought that too. Being an adult, growing right. up, you know, making mistakes, yep. or figuring going off things on your out. own, yep. you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's normal until it was normal until it wasn't normal. Right. You know. Right. There came a line where yeah, it was being crossed. Those it, symptoms were exceeding normalcy. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I I do have another brother who is doing okay, but has been told that he has it and then I have another brother who is seven how old, how old is the brother that has it he is well I'm 33 I'm just gonna round up because it makes me feel better about it when I actually <laughs> turn 33 right um he's about 39 yeah yeah, yeah. so so um, he's doing when you say okay I don't mean to skip over him or skip back but yeah he struggles I mean, with Drug yeah. use. Drug use. Um, which is which is common for this disease for sometimes mm-hmm. people to start. Well, it's impulse control. I mean, you, you lose your decision making. Decision making and your kind of impulsivity is increased. Um, Did he have an issue with drugs before he found out about his MLD? Um, yes. Yeah. So that's probably So, I mean, not that's helped. not helpful. Right. And two, you know, I think there's a lot of other factors, you know, that come into play, whether it's mental health or depression or anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah. And then so I, he's not living at home. He's off on his own, but no, he has it. He's living at home now. Oh, he is. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. See? Yep. And then I have my other brother, Joel, who was my best friend. You know, he's still currently living, but um, he's disabled, very much so disabled. Um I kind of akin MLD to almost like Alzheimer's or dementia, where the person is still present with you physically, but mentally they are not with us anymore. They're not with us. And it's uh, in social work, we call it ambiguous loss. It's a very, it's kind of a conflicted type of loss and grief that you go through because here they are right in yep, front of you, yep. but they're gone. And every know? time you go home, you see your best friend, but he's not who he once was. Yeah. He's a shell of who exactly he was. So Yeah. And I mean and I and I go home and I see him and I think that'll be me someday. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's hard. And you know what's hard about it for those of you that don't know with a severe onset of MLD is um Joel is unable to speak mm-hmm. and have a conversation. For a while had not Tretz, but he would have outbursts of vocabulary, right, Heather? And yeah. So well, just, just to give you an idea of what yeah. my brother was like. So my brother Joel used to, you know, like I said, roof houses before, um, kind of a big gruff guy. But he was always very witty, very smart alecky, you could say. And um, so Joel's the youngest of my four brothers. So it's, it goes Joel, James, uh, Sean, and Daniel. So in ascending order and there was one time actually my father told this story where um he was yelling at joel like in in our living room and we have these steps going down to the basement where james is sleeping or james had his bedroom down there and my dad is just yelling at joel but he's calling him james the entire time and he's like, James, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you are in so much trouble. And, and like full on, you know, probably yelling for five minutes. And um, 
Joel just kept looking at him and like smiling and laughing and was and it was just pissing my dad off more and more and more and my dad's telling it and he's like I can't figure out why you know he's smiling at me when I'm when I'm yelling at him (laughs) and then then at the end of um the end of my dad's rant my brother Joel opens the door to the to the basement and he goes James I don't know what the hell you did but you better get up here (laughs) so Anyway, that was just kind of the type of guy he was. He would really kind of push your buttons, but be very funny about it. So, my brother is six two. He used to roof houses. He used to do sheetrocking. Like mm-hmm. he was, he used to be able to bench over three hundred pounds. Like he was mm-hmm. a big, a, strong a big man. guy. Very witty. Very funny. Yep. Like, um, took care of his little sister. Oh yeah. Stuck up for her. He, he, got, he was a good friend. Yeah. I mean. Taught me how to drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> taught me how to drive. Taught me how to ride my bike. Yep. I mean, gave you, know. you life advice. I mean, well, he was yeah. everything a brother could be and more. And yeah, he was definitely my best friend. And it's it's hard saying was. I have yeah. A, I have a hard time like with past has yeah. past tense and present because even though he's still alive, I I feel like I've kind of grieved him. You know. Yeah. And. And, mm. you know, I think a lot of people, as far as the dementia and Alzheimer's comparison goes to, it's like, you've still lived a full life with your parent, and they've, you know, acquired that disease as they've aged, and yeah. it's crazy to hear my story and thinking about being in a chair at my age and going through a traumatic cancer diagnosis at my age, yeah. but can you imagine going through a terminal illness at our age Yeah. that no one understands. I mean, how isolating has it been for you, Heather? Oh, it's been, I mean, when I, I was still in college when I found out. I mean, I was right, God, 2010. Because your parents wanted to protect you when you were 15. Yeah. So Heather did not find out until, how old were you in 2010? You were like... It's like 22. Yeah. So her parents protected her for seven years. Yeah, which I... I'm so grateful for. Yeah. I mean, I got to grow up. I got to do normal, all those things yep. stupid college kids do. Um, because for me, and I think I think this might resonate with a lot of people, maybe with you, I mean, there's life before MLD, there's life before cancer, and then there's life after. Yeah. Like, it's that, you know, mm-hmm. there's before and after. There's no, like, I don't know. Yeah, middle ground. Yeah. A current... Once yeah. you once you find out something like that, it's everything's not, different. Yep, everything's completely different, and you look at life completely differently. Yeah, of like, course you do. You think about things with a perspective and a lens that a lot of people don't. Yeah, I remember just being like completely devastated, but also like, all right, well, what am I gonna do to make my life have meaning then? Because there's got to be meaning in this. Yeah. I mean, and. For me, that's that's what has been helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about when you found out your mom called you up, or were you home? No, I called can my you, mom. Can you go back to that? So actually, I didn't tell any of my good friends for about nine months. Yeah. I didn't tell anyone. But your boyfriend at the time you told, right? Yeah. Right away? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was I kind of noticed my brother, who is now disabled, getting worse. Um excuse me and I remember calling my mom and just kind of asking her like what's going on with Joel like it was evident 
it was evident that he had it. I mean... Did you know in your head that it had a similarity with Dan? I I knew that it had a similarity with the disease. Um, and I remember asking her a couple of times, and she just kind of brushed me off in a weird way because it was so evident that he had it. And I, I remember just thinking, like, all right, well, if she's not going to confirm what to me is obviously undeniable, why would she do that? And then I, I just, I knew even before I knew. You know. And do you remember what she said? Do you remember when it was final that she finally admitted to you? So I requested my records from the U of M. And I just called her up. It was July 8th, 2010. And it was a summer evening. And I just called her and I said, you know, Mom, I just want you to know something. I requested my records from the U of M. And she just said, oh, honey, and started sobbing. That's and I right. knew. And I, yeah, and I just cried. Yeah. And then I didn't wear eyeliner for, like, the entire summer because all <laughs> I did was cry yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after you found out and you told me in person, I don't think we hung out very long that day. Like, I remember talking to you a lot about it over the next couple weeks about what that meant. and Because yeah. I didn't know at the time. I didn't even have cancer at that time. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was even more naive than you were as far as losing your brother. And, like, you know, you had had turmoil in your family about MLD. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my car and us just wondering, like, yeah, what is the meaning of life now that you have this? Okay, I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about Beauty Counter. They make amazing lotions and balms that are safe for the whole family, even new babies. I love this stuff because the products are naturally derived and safe for the little ones. The sunflower oil nourishes deep in the skin while forming a protective barrier. The shea butter and jojoba seed oil easily absorbs into the skin, providing immediate lasting hydration. My two favorite products are the Baby Daily Protective Balm or the Adaptive Moisture Lotion. It feels so great on my dry face during the winter. I love that these products use biomimic technology that harnesses the unique life-giving properties of plants to match the skin, giving it precisely what it needs and nothing more. If you are interested in learning more about Beauty Counter, contact my consultant Linda. You can go to beautycounter.com forward slash Linda Gallagher, G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I just want to back up and say something because I've, I've had people, friends, I mean, who love me and know me or just people who I've told this story to about how I found out, express their anger towards my parents. And I just want to say that I've no never idea. and I've never been angry ever. If anything, it was the greatest gift I've ever been given. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that on the mm-hmm. record because yeah. I, I've had a lot of people be like, "How could you? Yeah. How could you not like, tell you? Know, yeah. Like, yeah, it's awful if they didn't tell you." And, and right. it's like, no, it's actually great. Yeah. So I just want to clarify that because I I think that's great. Yeah, and I am not trying to disrespect my parents at all. No, um, I think a lot of parents would want to protect their kids. Of yeah. something like that. It's like if you knew your kid was going to die 
when they were 30 years old, would you tell them that? I mean, I think a lot of people might say, no, I wouldn't tell them that. Yeah, I mean... That can affect everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it and it did once I did know. I mm-hmm. mean, there was never any, like, normalcy. Right. <laughs> like, after, I mean, you know, so... Yeah, so... I, things were not normal, and they didn't feel normal. I mean, what is normal anyway, but... Yeah, right away after I found out, I you know, I joked about not wearing eyeliner, but I'm I'm not kidding. Like I yeah. literally stopped wearing eye makeup because I cried every day. You did. I mean, that's how you reacted immediately. It was crying every day. Yeah, I would say so. Um It's funny because I remember like I was working at the St. Cloud State Library at the time and I just I kept my shit together. Like yeah. I didn't tell anybody. Yeah. Like, I literally, only my boyfriend knew at the time. I don't think you told me for I didn't tell a couple you. weeks. I think it was two weeks at least. I don't least. think I really told anybody until, I mean, I called my really good friend Kristen um, that night. Um, and then my brother, Sean, drove up um, with his wife from Champlin and took me out to dinner. And did Sean know about? I mean, I think, yeah, I think he kind of had an idea. Um but then in terms of, like, my really good friends, I didn't tell until, like, it was, like, nine months later. Um, I think I think I told Tesla earlier, but, like, some of my good friends from Bemidji... Didn't um, know for even a year after. I yeah, remember yeah. that was something you kept very tight to the chest. Yeah, I was I was afraid of being judged. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I admire that you let me in because well, I would never judge you, and I... Yeah. It makes me sad, too, thinking about how you were going through that on your own. Yeah, I mean, it was a fear of what next. It was a fear of people looking at me differently, which did happen. Um, You know, I think... So this was July, and then I was going into my final year of... God, I must have been 22 or... Yeah, 22. So I was going into my final year of um, my undergraduate... I was a super, super senior because I, uh, <laughs> I changed so my major a couple so times. But think um, about, think about you know, the listeners that are 22 now oh, or yeah. within a couple Keep years of it. 22. Keep with it. Your friends are, you're still young and you're still experiencing adulthood in yeah. a new level. Like, I'm sure a lot of your friends, Heather, couldn't even fathom something like that. No. Let alone it happening to them, but someone they love. And maybe even the quality of your relationships changed as far as friends go. Oh, totally. I mean... Because of the seriousness of your now yeah. life. It had shifted overnight. Well, I don't think some people at that at that time in their lives had that emotional maturity no. or capacity. No, are you kidding? I mean, think about people now. I know. At our age, 10 years later, yeah. still don't have that That's emotional true. capacity. That is true. I... I you know, I did have a really good friend who just stopped talking to me. Like, she was one of my best friends. And, and she you told just, her what it was, and she yeah. just... In fact, she was the one who urged me to go request my records, ironically. Yeah, that is ironic. And, and then, uh, when she stopped, what do you mean? Like, would you run into her and she wouldn't talk no, to like you? No, like, well, she graduated um, early, like a semester early that year. So she was done in December. So she moved back down to the cities, and then it's just nothing. 
Yeah. And just quit having really, a relationship. It was really painful because I was there for her through some things that were really hard and yeah. traumatic. And I guess I thought it would be reciprocated. Yeah. And it wasn't. Wow. And I mean, it, I as think... As if it wasn't lonely enough. Yeah. And I, I mean, looking back at it now, it's been nine years, almost 10 years since I found out. But, it, you know, I have that understanding now that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about me. It was about her. She wasn't comfortable. She didn't know how to handle it. She didn't have the emotional capacity to hold my pain. Right, right. Um, and it was easier for her to just kind yeah, of Yeah, and for go. a while I was really angry about it and I was really hurt. And then yeah. and then I realized, you know, the older I got and the more she just couldn't do it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely, it changed a lot of relationships and dating. Yeah. Which Tess and I talk about a lot. Dating has just been like, it's a roller coaster because yeah. I think you have this heavy, heavy thing. I mean, I'm sure for you, you wonder, well, what, what if my cancer comes back? Right. Like, or what will people think of me because I'm in a chair? Yeah, exactly. And I think an element that adds some scariness to your situation, uh, Heather, is it's not something someone could look at you. Yeah. A stranger on the street can look at you and think you're completely normal and everything's going right in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Because your um, disease is not something I can see with a naked eye. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you, you just, you never know what people are dealing with. Exactly. And why it's good to be kind to yeah. those around you. Well, yeah, I always remember my, you know, my mom would always say, be kind to everyone you meet because you never know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think it it changed a lot of things for me. I I was fortunate enough to already be in the social work major. I was almost, you know, I had one more year to go. And by the way, I got a 4.0 in both of my last semesters. Yeah, and I graduated summa cum laude. Yes, you did. So that's something to be proud of. And Heather? I kind of... I'm dead serious and you're not going to like me saying this. I see you blinking at me already. I don't know what she's going to say. But Heather is a very studious person, a confident person. Mm. She's excellent at what she does when she puts her mind to it. And that's something to be proud of, to be that brave after getting such a diagnosis and being able to graduate with a 4.0. So as if that's not hard enough to do, but then to have all the fears of getting a terminal diagnosis. It's just, I'm proud of you. And I know that that's not easy, so. Thanks. Yeah, Yeah. I was kind of like... Well, I'm going to grab this last year by the balls and do it. Yeah. And I did. And But one thing that was really helpful and I, I think kind of changed my direction in social work was um, I had this amazing professor named Sheila. She's still there um, as far as I know at St. Cloud I love State. Sheila. Yeah. We love you, Sheila. Uh, but I remember she was my advisor and my... I don't know, I had her for one of my last classes, and she just said something, like, the first day of class that, like, kind of shook me. Like, had nothing bad happened this summer, I would have I would have just glazed over it. But she said at the beginning of class, or the first day of class that year, she said, you know, if something's happened to you over the summer, or if you need, if you need anything, or if I need to be aware of anything, please come and let me know. And I thought, holy shit, I don't think I've ever had a teacher say this. Or maybe maybe they have, but I, it just never was applicable to me. It meant something that she said it. Yeah, yeah, and I thought, you know what? 
she threw a bone out there that I didn't even know I needed and I need it. And I went and I talked to her. And Do you um, remember what you said and what her reaction was? I brought one of my friends with me because I cried the entire time. <laughs> and I told her what happened. She probably had no idea. No, I, but I think, you know, in this field and being a mentor and Absolutely. to students and being a, a teacher, she... She's, you know, I'm sure has seen stuff and mm-hmm. heard stuff. and mm-hmm. um, But she just said, you know, you should go talk to somebody. And I was kind of like, oh, God, a therapist? Yeah, a therapist. <laughs> like, Who needs a therapist? But yeah, we all do. Absolutely. Healthy people need help. Yep. So anyway, I, I did. And, and it completely changed my life. And it saved me that year. Yeah. It did. Yeah. All the anxieties you have as a young adult... But then finding out about a terminal illness, I mean, yeah, you have to be able to talk about Yeah, all and navigating of that. your last year of school and navigating yep. what does this mean and mm-hmm. thinking about your own mortality. Absolutely. And Those are not things you can just do on your own. And your relationships with friends and boys and Yeah. I'm gonna say boys because most of the people I dated back then were boys. Yeah. <laughs> not very mature. But you know what I mean? It it just everything was different. Yeah. As you know too, I'm sure. Yeah. absolutely um but yeah and it kind of made me think about what I want to do and within my field and I um eventually I went back and got my master's so and how did that go it was really hard it was really hard because I equate well this is to be completely honest I went back because I wanted to prove to myself I wasn't sick yeah, she, you know, having a brother who died at 27, yeah. and you were 22 and you were diagnosed, when did you get your master's? Um, How old were you, do you remember? It was just like well, three, four years I ago. I graduated in 2017, so... Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. So, so here you are, I was 30. over the age of 30, and you're able to get your master's even though you have a terminal illness. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I wanted to push myself... And I think I did a little too far, a little too hard. Because mm-hmm. um, you were working full-time. Yeah, I you? was working full-time and I wow. was going to school part-time. Yeah, I mean, so you were working Yeah. and doing school, like, mm-hmm. you know, overtime for mm-hmm. sure. So. Oh, yeah, I mean, but it was definitely an unhealthy way to look at it, like, to look at or compare oh, for sure. that correlation of like, well, if I get an A, that means I'm healthy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I put a lot of unnecessary pressure on myself yeah. to perform and to be like functioning on all cylinders and all capacities. Mm-hmm. And my, my mental health was not great. Like yeah. uh, it was up and down through grad school. Yeah. Like I started having some pretty bad sleep issues um, where I would wake up at like two in the morning and I couldn't fall back asleep because my head would just be spinning. Yeah. Do you remember what you were anxious about at 2 a.m.? Were you thinking just about MLD? I mean, that was I mean, I was thinking about grad school and everything I had to do and what was due and just day by day, all of those little things that I had to keep under wraps, you know? Because, I mean, you're also paying for grad school. Right. It's not cheap. No. And and you're working. And you're working. And I went to an expensive school. Yeah. Probably the most expensive school for your master's in clinical social work. Um. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of pressure just to, like, you know, you're putting all of this time and money into something, and you want to get something out of it. So, um, but anyway, back to 
back to that last year at SESU, I mean, that was a really hard year. Yeah. Does Um, anything stick out in your mind, what your therapist told you, that's been, that's resonated with you and that stuck with you as you've lived all the, all the years of life since your diagnosis? Is there anything that's really helped you that she said or made you think about? Yeah. I mean... She had me read a lot of books, which was great because I was going crazy. Like, I felt like I was going crazy. Like, I had to just keep busy because if I sat still or if I did whatever, like, I I would yeah. just ruminate and think what, about it. What were these books about? Were they other stories of people with terminal disease? Um, it was people overcoming, you know, really some life hardships. Um, she had me read Man's Search for Meaning. Which, um, I don't know if any of the listeners have read it, but... Yeah, look it up, um, everybody. Have Who's you it read by? it? Have no, read it? Oh. I haven't. So, it's about... It's uh, it's by Viktor Frankl. Um, he was a psychologist, and during World War II, he was imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camps. And he basically discovered, you know, that people who had a reason to live, or to get out of these camps, if they had a, a will and a reason to live, they, they did. Yeah. They Amazing. had greater chances of surviving. So he did um, survive. He did, yes. And he he talked about, um, he kind of invented something called logotherapy, which I can't speak in depth about that right now, but... Um, A very good he, book. Yeah, and he found that, you know, if if you can find meaning in your suffering, then it makes the suffering almost bearable. Right. And I know that, you know, some people will debate that that's not true and that, you know, whatever, but... And there are different stages of yeah. grief and acceptance. And yeah. I think he came to a place of such horror that he was able to persevere. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, he um, he has a quote, and I, I know I'm not going to say this correctly, but it's, That's okay. it's basically like you can take away... Um, so, it, so the quote is, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So Amazing. I think, I mean, it is, you know. There's nothing sometimes that we can do about something that has happened to us or something that has happened to someone we love. Mm-hmm. We can't change it, but we can change how we react to it. Right. So that was probably the single most helpful thing. I can let it squash me or I can handle it. I can get up and I can fall back down. Right. Exactly. And that's okay. I think too. And then I can get up again. Yeah. So going back to how we can go through something and have, have it be okay. I mean, that's one way, obviously. What other ways have you been able to practice day to day to help you remain positive or... To be able to move ahead. I mean, giving mm. yourself grace, Heather. Yeah. Giving yourself patience, allowing yourself to have bad days. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. have that be okay. I right? definitely have days where I'll just cry. Yeah. Or I'll just sit. I take a lot of baths. Yeah. <laughs> baths are great. Baths are great. Um, I Sometimes I just, I have a hard time allowing myself to cry until it just, I just can't help it anymore right. and I just have to. Right. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. I talk a lot with my close friends you being mm-hmm. one of them mm-hmm. I'm a talker so I have to talk through through things and you still see a therapist yeah I'm I've been in and out of therapy I would say yeah since um when I'm doing well I'm not in therapy mm-hmm. as much like that's common um it's a common thing but when things kind of flare up or life gets hard I try to go in because I know that's what I need and it's helpful how has your faith been shaken or rechecked 
with all of this. And be I, honest, it's I, okay if you're yeah, I struggling mean, now or was before. I would say I wasn't even really a Christian until I was diagnosed. Like, and then I felt like I felt God's presence. I you felt, felt called. Yeah, I mean, to I have felt, a relationship. How did you feel His presence? Um, you can describe that. Yeah, I mean, I just felt that same evening that I found out that I had MLD and I was home alone actually waiting for my brother to come pick me up. And I just sat outside and it was really pretty, like a really pretty um, summer evening. And I just looked up at the sky and I was like, all right, God. It's you and me, God. Do whatever you want with me because I give up and I can't face this alone. Yeah. And then I felt really peaceful and it was really weird. Like it was a weird... um, it's like a juxtaposition of like having the most chaotic turmoil thing ever happen to you, but feeling like this insane amount of peace. Like God could see you and was giving you some kind of strength yeah. that night. Yeah. And yeah. so, but I mean, it's, it's been an up and down relationship, you mm-hmm. know? And there yeah. are definitely days where I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, why God? Fuck? Yeah. Why? Or just, yeah. I mean... And I think that's human nature is to want to know why, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, do you ever wonder, like, well, why did I get cancer? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why is there so much suffering? I mean, it's awful. Yeah. And it's, this is going to sound maybe awful, but I always wonder, like, why does this happen to me? Like, I'm a good right. person. Why doesn't this right. happen to shitty people out right. there? Right. Someone who's, yeah, murdered someone that, or... Yeah. And not to say that they haven't had awful things happen to them. Right. But it's like... But why you? Yeah. Yeah. Why weren't you spared? I I know what you mean. Yeah. I think that's a common reaction, a grief reaction too. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So, one thing we had put on our little question sheet to talk about with everybody today, um, worrying with anxiety or expecting the worst when there might not be a negative outcome in front of you. Mm-hmm. But your that process sort of becomes obsessive when you have a terminal disease. Can you talk a little bit about that, having to recheck yourself and getting over yeah. the hump? Well, for sure. I mean, for me, I feel like it manifests in different ways. I mean, originally when I first found out about MLD, I was always constantly, like, worried about my behavior. Yeah. Like, am I am I acting normal? Yeah. Or am I doing that because my MLD started? Yeah. Am I getting sick? Mm-hmm. Like, am I Yeah. Did, acting... did I just flip out on that friend because I'm losing my patience? Yeah. Was that a normal reaction or was that an MLD reaction? Yeah. Like, literally, that's how... And then you, you just, after a while, you realize you're making yourself literally crazy. Go crazy. Yeah. Um... So how do you get over that hump day to day? I mean, I imagine... I think, I think it just got tiring for yeah. me. I just was like, I can't do you this. You can't carry that. I can't live like this no. anymore every day. I mean, it's... It's got to be scary though, Heather. I mean, every birthday you have... Oh, yeah. Every day that passes by, knowing that your demise is that much closer, you know, for lack of a better statement. Yeah. How, how do you maintain positivity? What things have you given up? What things have you well re-checked? I know I know and you know I've gone through some recent ups and downs with my relationships um with men uh per se and I went down a really unhealthy path of drinking too much which I think I had been going down for a while um and and what did that do for I you mean, well alcohol is a depressant 
we all, I mean, most of us know that. And I think I used it to cope a lot. Yeah. You'd get home from work and... Oh my God. Yeah. I would always have wine. I would have wine when I was cooking. I would have wine. Like, first thing I would do when I get home. Yeah. Drink some wine. Um, Before you even ate dinner. Oh yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I think it was an everyday, I would have some, some sort of alcohol every day. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I'm going, oh God, six, You're clean. six weeks yeah. sober and I... Another clap factor. That's yeah, not easy to do. It's not. Especially having it every day to giving it up is amazing. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it, it just fed into, you know, you, you don't feel, you don't think clearly. You're foggy in the morning. You're... More emotional, more right? More emotional. Um... Yeah, it's like it's like a little band-aid that you have to rip off and rip the scab off too. And yeah. then you put a band-aid back on and it's and then just, the scab it's, gets you're ripped not off. actually healing ever. Right. Um, right. when you're using alcohol, at least for me. So um that was something and actually when I first found out I had MLD, like back in two thousand ten, I didn't drink that entire rest of that summer. Yeah. Which because I just I didn't I was you, scared. And you didn't want to be in the party scene. That wasn't something that you well, and I, I also had this feeling of anger towards people who were partying around me of like, you guys have healthy bodies right. and you're abusing them. Yeah. And you're having fun and acting like everything's fine. Which, you, can't you know, stuff. like, that's okay for them to do. But at the time I was going through these emotions of like... You couldn't stuff those emotions. Yeah. 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 Like, you guys have all of my friends or whatever who are just slamming shots and abusing their bodies. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. I just, I felt like... Having a healthy body was such a privilege at that point. Yeah, what a neat way, though, to look at that. What a cool perspective. Yeah. So, and then I eventually went, you know, I went back to drinking. But so recently, I've kind of given it up again. And have, have you been able to get out of a negative thought process now that you, has it been easier to maintain now that you're not drinking alcohol? I mean, I'm thinking more clearly. That's good. I still have negative. I mean, I think sometimes, and my therapist has said, you know, Heather, you've had a lot of Lots. bad things yeah. happen, especially within the last year, that you just kind of expect to have more bad things happen. Right. And especially in, like, relationships and dating, like, I'm, yeah. you know, it's I just expect the worst. Yeah. And it makes me reevaluate <clears throat> I must be like hypersensitive about is this the normal relationship? Am I, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And like, yeah, yeah. So, and it's hard to settle down with anyone when you feel like exactly. that. Exactly. Again, it's like as if we weren't having enough as a normal young well, and woman. You, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be rejected because no, you have because this. you have MLD, right? And I have dated a guy who literally said to me. You remember this. Yeah, you're going to turn into a vegetable. Didn't he say something well, like that? Well, no, what are about, the... No, I'm talking about my first my first relationship outside, like after. What did he say? He said... What he kinds did, of things have they said? Um, he didn't want to take care of a wife someday. Yeah. Quote. Unquote. Which then, why would you ever get married? Yeah, because guess what, honey? You're going to have to take care of your partner yeah. at some point. Yeah. Yeah, but that was like my first relationship out after knowing that I had MLD and yeah, it was wow. soul crushing. Yeah, I I'm I'm sure it was. That's it awful. It was so painful yeah. and so hurtful. To and say that to a friend or even a family member, but to hear it This is like an intimate boyfriend yeah. who I had dated for ten months who, who you thought I was you were gonna have a future with. Who I was vulnerable with. And they said, I don't wanna take care of a wife. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, you know, this is all while he was breaking up with me at my 4th of July party yeah. when we were drinking. And um, I think, too, like, for me, it's re- my, like, I struggle with my confidence. Yeah. And my self-esteem. We all do. It's I know. Everybody's, <laughs> yeah. It's everybody's battle every day. But it's I, true. like you, like we said before we recorded today, it's exacerbated by yeah. having a terminal illness. Oh, yeah. Everything's exasperated. 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 It's a hard word. It's like Worcestershire. Yeah. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, everything, you're kind of hypersensitive to everything, and you've been through enough pain that, like, more pain just feels almost more painful. (laughs) Right. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. It's, like, amplified. So now knowing, kind of going through a few relationships and knowing what needs to happen, what's a good rule of thumb for someone with a disease or a health issue, yeah. I mean, how what would what advice would you give to the listeners about how to handle that? Don't now? sell yourself short like I did. Yeah, don't settle and don't put up with crap. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, I would I would second that as a woman in a wheelchair who dated. Um, yeah, you are all of you listeners, whether you have a disease or a disability or not, you are worthy of love. You are worthy of being a partner. And you're worthy to stick up for yourself. And all those, you know, definitions of love that has been pounded into our head. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. I mean, we're allowed to love ourselves. And Heather, my prayer and hope for you is that you continue to truly believe that. Yeah. And not just tell yourself that because you know that that's the healthier thing. Yeah, I mean, that was... I think that was one of the things too I thought of like initially when I was diagnosed I was like god who's ever gonna want to be with me yeah who will ever want to be with me and be on this road with me like yeah you know and I think I just kind of settled for crap because I figured well I'll just take what I can get you know what I mean no one's gonna want to be with me I, I mean dating initially was really scary and you know, I don't think that individual who told me he didn't want to take care of a wife someday, I don't think I told him right away about my disease because I was guarded and I was scared. It was my first relationship. But now I'm like, hey, now you talk here's about my it. crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I love that. Please, I love that Please walk away now if you can't handle it because yeah. I don't want to be invested in you and have the heartbreak even hurt yeah. more. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and, and I think it's interesting now, Heather, just knowing you the past three, four years, I feel like when you meet strangers on the street or when you were drinking in a bar, you, you've you been more vulnerable to share that. And I think that that's yeah. really amazing of you to just lay that out. And people have received you pretty well, haven't they? A lot of people have. I mean, I think it's, it's a fine line, you know? And yeah, I've been burned before I've had guys say things to me like I've had a friend tell a guy that I was interested in and then he came up to me at a at a at a drinking establishment and he was like so I hear you have a terminal like what the yeah like well in a bar I'm like what the fuck is that the place you'd want to talk about it probably not at a bar no and just the way it was brought up just seemed really inappropriate and I'm like you know that's for me to approach with you that's not for you to approach with me right but what about the good you know I know you've had people who've said like oh well thank you for sharing that like I lost my mom to cancer or yeah oh yeah I mean there is good for every bad there's good right yeah and that's just that's that's the beauty of life like there's always going to be something to outweigh or balance out whatever right. um right. but i think that's a personal choice you know for whoever's listening if they're in a similar situation 
they you don't know, have you, to tell people. You don't have to tell people, or you can. I mean, I eventually just got to the point where I was like, I don't want to invest any more time into people that don't people that don't deserve it. Right, and get to see and the it's genuine hard, you. And it's hard to. Some people might be better at discerning who's worth their time or not, but like for me, I just kind of give people the benefit of the doubt, which is just who I am. Well, Heather, thank you so much for sharing your story. And yeah, um, if any of you have any questions for Heather, feel free to email the yeah. podcast email. Please do. It is pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com. Heather, do you want people to just comment through there? Do you want to tell anybody how to find you on social media? It's okay um, if you don't right now. They can just comment on there and you can filter it towards me. Yeah, and then that I'll, sounds good. And if, if you have a question for me directly, I'll get back to you. Yes, absolutely. And Heather will be on more. She is a friend that I've had for a long time and someone that I'm blessed to know through my disease and cancer. And, you know, as I was going through all the feelings of uh, denial and fear and anger and all of that it was really helpful Heather to have you as a friend who understands that not everybody's healthy and how to how to weigh and balance all of that and you know that's another reason why I like to be genuine about my troubles and want to kind of bear all because if I can help one person go through something it's worth it, and that's why Heather chose to be on. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And she will be back. And again, if you guys have any questions for her, please email the podcast or shoot us a message on Instagram, and we will definitely get back to you. But Heather is living by herself, excelling at work. Is there anything else you want to share about how you are today? How I am today? I mean, you know, honestly, there are good days and there are bad days, but the bad days won't always be there, and the good days come. That's so, right. And when you're at the bottom of the pit, there's only up from there, right, that's Heather? Right. That's right. So keep keep your heads up, and uh, thanks again for having me on. Thank you to everyone who has given me feedback, emailed feedback at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com, liked or followed or subscribed to my pages. If you are interested in financially supporting Push Diaries podcast, you can visit my Patreon page. I'm also thinking about ways to give back. I'm just really excited to talk about disabilities more and different agencies and organizations that I've learned about that I'm proud of and excited to share with the listeners. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.